Let's take our Bibles and go back to Isaiah 52. The gospel message tells us that God has made us in his image. And he's made us in his image to reflect his glory. To gladly live for him. He made you. He made your neighbor. He made your coworker. He made the relatives that you have. In his image, kind of like a limited replica. Not a perfect in the sense of one for one. We could never be that way as created beings. But morally... The ability to speak and to think and respond. He made every human being like him. But the sad fact is every human being has fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, every human being is guilty before God. And every human being is condemned. The wages of sin is death. Yet we learned last week that the Son of God took on human flesh and he lived a human life, didn't he? He lived a perfect human life. His character was perfect. His communication was perfect. His conduct was perfect. And yet, the scriptures tell us that Jesus died. We're not surprised we know that we die. In fact, death is so much a part of human life, people say it's natural. But death is not natural from the sense of that was God's original intent in creation. Death is a, it's a condemnation. It's, a, it's something we experience as a result of our sin. So why did Jesus die? Today, let's focus on and consider the death of the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, Let's do this so that you will honor him better, Christian. Christian, so that you will know him better. And when you know him better, you will love him more. You'll worship him better. Worship is not something you kind of conjure up with a special button or some response to our feelings. Worship is the response of your heart to truth, a right response. Learn about our death, the death of, our, of your Savior, so that you're better equipped to tell others about the death of Christ. Isaiah 52, verse 13, down to the end of chapter 53. This is perhaps one of the, if not the, greatest passage we have in Scripture about the death of Christ. Well, what was going on in Isaiah up to this point? Isaiah said about Israel's situation that Israel was estranged from God because of their sin. But yet Israel also said that God would restore Israel. How could that happen? How could that be that Israel, who was estranged from God, an enemy of God, alien to God, not loving God, would be restored to a place of acceptance and service. Israel's far from God, but how would the Lord do that? The answer begins in chapter 42, verse 1. You don't need to turn there. But in chapter 42, verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, my servant, my elect one. 
And then what do we read here in Isaiah 52, verse 13? Behold, my servant. That is how the Lord will, and will bring Israel, believing Israel, restore, bring them back to a place of restoration and a right standing before the Lord. Let's look at God's word this morning and learn about God's servant, Israel. I'm sorry, learn about God's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, first of all, a servant like no other. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Sometimes you might wonder uh, when you hear somebody uh, uh, teach or preach through a passage, uh, how do they, they get these points? Well, Isaiah 52, verse 13, down through chapter 50, the end of 53, makes it very simple, makes it very easy, because you have one, two, three, four, uh, five different sections and I would encourage you, that's the best way to walk through a passage. What has God said? How has he said it? Uh, and, and to learn. The first thing we see in 52, 13 to 15, is that the servant will be like no other. Why? Why will he be like no other? Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He'll be like no other because, number one, he will be exalted. He will be exalted like no other. When it says he'll deal prudently, that means he will live wisely. He'll live wisely, perfectly, to accomplish his purpose and reason for coming. He will not fail. He will not fail. Remember Joshua chapter 1, verse 8? This book of the law will not depart out of your mouth, but you will meditate there in day and night. Then your way will be prosperous. Then you will find good success. That's what the servant would do. Perfectly obeying the Lord. And as a result of his character, as a result of that accomplishment, the, the rest of verse 13 piles up three words. He'll be exalted and extolled. And be very high. It demonstrates the glory that he'll deserve. Throughout Isaiah, the Lord says, I alone will be exalted. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. But what do we read here? We read of the servant. He will be exalted and extolled and be very high. I'm reminded also, and I'll read this later on if you want to just write it in here, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where it says of Jesus that he was humbled, he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant to the death, point of the death on the cross, but yet he will be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Think about this. Whoever in human history lived perfectly like this? Only Jesus. Who else deserves that kind of exaltation and being lifted up? He is like no other, first because he'll be exalted like no other. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than sons of men. Number two, the servant will suffer like no other. He is like no other, number two, in his suffering. We have some unexpected statements here in verse 14 
following verse 13. I mean, verse 13, he's going to be exalted like no other. And then what do we read in verse 14? Not what we expected. He will suffer greatly. He's not going, this is the point, he's not going to appear influential as great. He'll be viewed as ugly and disfigured because of his suffering by human standards. People are going to be shocked by this and think little of him. A third reason why he will be like no other is number three, the servant will cause amazement like no other. He will cause amazement like no other. Verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. The beginning of verse 15, it says, he'll sprinkle many nations. This is an expression used several times in the book of Leviticus about cleansing from sin. Cleansing from sin, forgiveness of sin. That is the result of his sufferings from verse 14. Because he will suffer, many will have their sins forgiven. And as a result of the servant's suffering, uh, many will trust in him. And so how will the nations respond? That's the rest of verse 15. You'll know. Verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations, period. And then we have three statements about how Gentile nations will respond. You could just put it this way. They will be speechless. They will be speechless. Amazed appalled at the idea and the concept of one could provide deliverance from something that they couldn't save themselves from, in other words, sin. We can be forgiven, we can be delivered from sin, but the means of that deliverance is humiliation and suffering, verse 14. We are amazed by this. We're dumbfounded. We're astonished. We'd never heard such a thing before. The point of this first uh, paragraph, verses 13 to 15, is that God will greatly exalt his servant, but yet mankind will not know what to think about him. God will greatly exalt his servant, but mankind will not know what to think about him. Isaiah teaches us, secondly, that the servant will be loathed, verses 1 through 3. He will be loathed. How will he be loathed? Verse 1, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Number 1, the servant was rejected. Immediately following what we just read and looked at, this is another example where chapter divisions might not be the, the greatest help to us because it kind of breaks it up. And we need to see this as a whole, as an entire portion. When Jews and Gentiles heard these truths about the Messiah, they will not believe it. Who has heard? Who has believed our report? Remember, think back to what we looked at in the book of Acts. Think about 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about preaching the gospel. It's foolishness to Gentiles. It's rejected by Jews. It wasn't what they expected to hear. Despite this, despite this, 
uh, this great work of the Lord, his arm, they will not believe it. He will be rejected. He is loathed, number two, because he was unattractive. The servant was unattractive. Verse two, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He will be a commoner in appearance. Nothing royal about him. He will not have that look of being impressive or powerful by the world's standards. This is the primary reason Israel would reject Jesus as their Messiah. He did not fit their estimation of what the Messiah should look like. A third reason why the Messiah, the servant, is loathed is because he is hated. Basically a synonym for loathed. He is hated, verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did, we did not esteem him. He would be repulsive to people. Despised and rejected by men. Hated. And as a result of that, no one thought of him as someone who is important. No one looked at him as of someone of high value. No one, what's the saying, what this is saying is no one would believe. No one would believe. And that's what happened, wasn't it? Fallen human nature is impressed by things that are material, that look impressive to us. But God is not impressed by externals, is he? Not at all. The point of verses 1 through 3 is that despite God's great salvation through the servant, despite God's great salvation through the servant, he'll be rejected. And he would be hated. A third thing to learn about the servant is that he will suffer for sinners, verses 4 through 6. How will he suffer? Isaiah tells us how. Number one, he will suffer, he will alone suffer for others. He will alone suffer for others. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He alone will suffer for others. He, it says, and then our and then our, and then our, and him. He'll suffer the consequences of sins, griefs, and sorrows. He will suffer though others considered his suffering just. They thought it right that he should suffer. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Think of the Jews' response what they called for Pilate to do when Jesus was before Pilate. They didn't say free him. Free him. What did they say? Crucify him. A second way in which he will suffer, suffer verse 5, he will suffer as a substitute. He will suffer 
as a substitute. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. His suffering we read here. Listen to his suffering. Wounded, bruised, chastised, and stripes. See the substitution here. Our transgressions and our iniquities. See the salvation that he won. Peace and healing. Sin causes a disruption, a, a break, an enmity between human beings and God. And sin brings death to the soul and every trouble in life. He will suffer as a substitute. He will thirdly suffer, verse 6, because the Lord imputed, at your blank there, this explains why he suffered. The Lord imputed sin to the servant, verse 6. A verse I'm sure many of us have memorized. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see in the beginning here, the very essence of sin is selfishness. Going your own way, not God's way. I'm going to say this because I want to say it. I'm going to do this because I want to do it. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to do it. That is godlessness. It is described as sin and transgression and iniquity. And these require judgments. But yet we read the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As an example or in another portion of scripture that teaches us from the New Testament, you could write down 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what's involved with imputation? We looked at this word last week briefly. It doesn't mean Jesus became a sinner. But what it means is he was made to bear the cost of that sin, to pay the debt of that sin. It was charged to his account. He never became a sinner, but he paid the full price of that sin. It was charged, imputed, credited to his account, as it were. Verses 4 through 6 teach us that the servant will provide salvation for sinners by suffering in their place. The servant will provide salvation for sinners by suffering in their place. The fourth section is verses 7 through 9. We, hear, we see how he will voluntarily die. Verses 7 through 9. He will voluntarily die. What would characterize his death? Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Number one, he willingly sacrificed himself. He willingly sacrificed himself. He never opened his mouth. That's stated, repeated here twice. 
He didn't try to stop the process. Remember, Jesus was in Pilate's hall. Jews are accusing him. Now what happened? Matthew 27, verses 13 to 14 is what happened. Matthew 27, 13 to 14. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. So that the governor marveled greatly. Jesus never stopped the process. He sacrificed himself. He went right along with that in obedience to the Lord. Number two, he died for others. Verse eight, he died for others. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Says when it when it says here at the beginning part of verse eight, he's taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was a condemned criminal, and he was then sentenced to execution, led away to execution, which is exactly what Pilate did. Publicly, the rest of verse eight, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for my transgression, the transgressions of my people. He was publicly executed for the sins of others. He voluntarily died for others. Number three, third aspect of his death is that he would be buried as a nobody. He would be buried as a nobody. The soldiers' intent in what they would always do with some with those who were crucified, would almost always do with those who were crucified, was they would make his grave with the wicked here, verse 9. And the idea here, he would just be thrown into the a, a pit for commoners with other condemned criminals, forgotten. But is that what happened with Jesus? No, that's not what happened. With the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was buried among the wealthy and he was sinless throughout the entire process all the way through death. The point of verses 7 through 9 is that the servant voluntarily gave himself to die for others. The servant voluntarily gave himself to die for others. Christian, we're learning about our Savior's death here. Last, verses 10 through 12. He will be exalted by the Lord. Why will he be exalted? Verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his day, she shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Number one, the righteous servant died as a guilt offering to atone for sin. He died as a guilt offering to atone for sin. Look at verse 10 again. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why did the servant die? Because that was God's will. This is Jesus' active obedience. He willingly, readily obeyed and did God's will. The second part of verse 10. You made it. You, when you make his soul an offering for sin, the servant's life was offered as a sacrifice, this guilt offering providing atonement for sin. He was 
punished. He was killed. This is his passive obedience. This is what he experienced. That's what's meant by that. So his active obedience, what he did. His passive obedience, what he bore, what he experienced, what happened to him. In the rest of verse uh, 10, he shall see his seed and prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will continue to live and do God's will. So he lived, verse, the beginning of verse 10. He died in the middle of verse 10. The last part of verse 10, his death is not the end for him. He will live again. His resurrection. His days will continue to do God's will. The Lord will exalt the servant, secondly, verse 11, because he died as a substitute. He died as a substitute. And you might say, didn't we already cover that once? In fact, I think we may have had a couple points about that already. That is one of the important things we must learn here. The servant dies as a substitute. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The Lord will be satisfied with the servant's suffering on behalf of sinners. The word for this is propitiation, used several times in the New Testament. Jesus bore the wrath that sinners deserved. We deserve God's wrath. But Jesus took your place, Christian, so that he would experience God's wrath. God's wrath would be turned away from you towards him. And as a result, middle of verse 11, my righteous servant shall justify many's, for he shall bear their iniquities. Because of that, Sinners will be justified. They'll be declared righteous by God's, by, by Jesus' work, the servant's work. A third reason that this servant will be exalted, verse 12, is he did this voluntarily. Again, repeated, because it must be recognized. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with a great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The servant will be satisfied with his work of dying for rebels. Verse 12. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession, intercession for the transgressors. He sacrificially gave himself. The idea of interceding here is not praying but intervening on their behalf. Sinners before God are condemned and the servant intervenes. He intercedes on their behalf and says to God, I will bear their sin. I will suffer for them. I will do this voluntarily. And so he will be exalted. I said earlier, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, listen to what Paul says here and you will hear how it echoes and reflects Isaiah 53. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form not of a king,
king or a prince, but what? A bondservant coming in the likeness of men. There is no form or comeliness about him. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself voluntarily. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, obeying God's will, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What must you learn today about Jesus' death that is essential gospel truth? Number one, Jesus' death was neither optional nor accidental. It says in verse 6, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was not optional. It says in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is not accidental. There was never a plan B, never a door number two, because the scripture says he was slain from the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. How was that accomplished? You might remember from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Peter's preaching how he was slain by the hands of wicked men to accomplish the predetermined counsel and plan of God. God caused the wrath of man to do his will. Number two, Jesus died as sinner's substitute. We can only suffer for our sin. I can't suffer for your sin. And even then, if I were to try to suffer and atone for my sin, if I do it for millions of years, I will never take away the guilt. I will still be guilty. I can never... Pay that debt. It is an infinite debt. My suffering for my own sin will never satisfy God's wrath because I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. I think that I can suffer for my sin to make things right with God. It will not. It will never reconcile me to God. It will never Gain me a right standing with God. And yet, what do most of your uh, friends, co-workers, relatives who are unsaved, what are they depending on to be right with God? Their good works, the church that they go to, and they think that will erase the debt, remove the guilt, Make things right with an infinite God. It will not. And that is just the works. That is not the suffering. But yet what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant, is he died as your substitute. 
And because he was sinless, as we will see this this afternoon, because he was sinless, it was a perfect sacrifice. Number three, some blanks for you here. Because this is the important gospel truth. Some important gospel truths that you must have nailed down about Je- from Jesus' death. Jesus' death removes guilt. It removes guilt for the believer. It pays debt. Jesus' death pays the debt. It satisfies wrath. It reconciles believing sinners to God. It removes guilt, pays debt, satisfies wrath, reconciles believing sinners to God, provides justification. Provides justification. Removes the guilt, pays the debt, satisfies wrath, reconciles believing sinners to God, provides justification. Christian, I would encourage you sometime in whatever you call it in your day, your quiet time, your devotions, your meditation in Scripture, to meditate and think on these five things that Jesus' death did for you. And we must remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He's the only way. Only his death could provide these things. Number four. Sinners' only hope of peace with God is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your only hope of peace with God is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or religion or any of these things or some great prayer or song that you sing or work that you do. It must be in Christ and in Christ alone. Number five might sound like I'm kind of losing my sanctification, but folks, number five, Catholicism's doctrine of transubstantiation, it is an abomination and a deception. And you might say, what exactly is transubstantiation? This afternoon, we'll remember Christ's death at the Lord's table. And the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation says this, that when the priest and only the priest, Catholic priest, administers uh, the mass, as they call it, he says words that magically, my word, cause the actual uh, bread to become the actual body of Jesus. And the, the cup, by the words that he says, and only the priest can say that. No other Christian can do it. The priest, by the words that he says, causes the, the juice, the wine, to become the actual blood of Jesus. Why do they go through all this again? Because it is all part of their system of salvation. The Roman Catholic believes the first essential step for salvation is baptism. Because that is what washes away original sin. 
And it gives you a little infusion of righteousness. That's why they baptize infants. Because they believe it does something spiritual for that infant. It washes away their sin and gives them righteousness. And that sets that infant Catholic boy or girl on a path for the rest of his Catholic life of faithfulness to the Catholic Church, of doing good works because his sin was washed away and he gained that righteous standing. That happened because of Christ. But it got, all, it, all Jesus did was get the ball rolling. What's necessary, according to Catholic doctrine, is the rest of that Catholic's life and living a life of obedience to the Lord with confession and then coming to the mass so that his sins that he did in that past year, Catholics are required to go to mass at least once a year, those sins that he did that past year, that when he comes to the, the, the mass, to the, 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 the communion table, Jesus is crucified again to pay the price of that sin. That's why they believe the body must, the, the bread must become the actual body of Christ, but the cup become the actual blood of Christ. This goes against Isaiah 53. This goes against all scripture, Hebrews in particular. It is an abomination. It takes away from Christ's glory and takes away from Christ's work. And this is the saddest thing. It deceives. It deceives. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you consider the Catholics that you know, work with, live by, and love, not to look at them as some horned false teacher, but as those who've been deceived. Look at them with compassion and love. And walk through with them Isaiah 53. And they'll see there is no church in there that's required for their salvation. It is only Christ. And that's where their hope alone must lie. Number, number six, unbelievers fail to see Jesus for who he truly is and what he did. We read that several times here. They don't get it at all. So is there any hope, Christian, in giving the gospel? I mean, if they're not going to get it, why bother, right? What hope is there? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? And what is it that enables the unbeliever to finally get it, to see it, to respond, to feel conviction, and to repent and believe? It's not your presentation. It's not how good you put the words together. And to this this should cause a great weight to be lifted off your shoulder in your evangelism. This is not saying it doesn't matter what you say. It does matter what you say. And we ought to lovingly urge. But what it's saying is this takes the responsibility of getting an unbeliever saved, all in quotes here, 
off your shoulders. That is God's work. And so you give that gospel. You urge them to trust and believe. And while you're doing that, oh, you're praying, Lord, remove the blinders that Satan is drawing over their eyes. Their heart is hardened, Lord. Help them to see. Give them a a heart of flesh to believe. You're praying throughout all that. Two last questions for us. Number seven, do I see sin for what it really is? The sins of our character. The motions of your heart. The assessments of our mind and feelings and thoughts about other people that we go through so quickly. The words that we say that we might post, email, text, or actually come out of our lips audibly. Do these things line up perfectly with a holy God? When they don't, that's iniquity. That's transgression. That's sin. And what had to happen because of that sin that you were, did, said, thought, felt, that leads to number eight. Do I appreciate what Jesus did? How he came with nothing beautiful about him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, despised, Stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, whipped, crucified, killed. Do you appreciate what Jesus did for you? The servant of the Lord who came to reconcile Israel to his God, to their God. And praise the Lord, we Gentiles, who had no hope. We are now made one with Christ.